Mark 15, verse 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. When the centurion which stood over against him saw that, he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I want to mention over the next few uh, messages, we look at Mark 15 and 16, some of the lesser known people uh, surrounding the crucifixion as we look at the crucifixion uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I was amazed by this week, studying this passage. All that God did to save man, we can't, we, there's no way for the human mind to truly understand a father that would send his son, a son that would give his life, shed his blood, 33 years among his creation, God in the flesh, all of those things. The more you meditate on it, the less you can understand it. The, the depth of God's love for mankind. But in the midst of this, uh, as we go through his, uh, the trial here, his time before Pilate, Herod, and then back before Pilate, and then as he's beaten and crucified, we see how he brings people in in the miracles surrounding the cross. And I don't want to take the time uh, to preach on the miracles surrounding the cross, but that alone should have been enough to connect the cables, turn on the lights of those that were not saved, those that were doubting that this was the very Christ, the Son of God. Amen. When you have darkness come over the face of the earth for three hours, look what it says in verse 33, when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Uh, one of the other gospels tells us that the sun went out and I know there's debate over, does this mean over Jerusalem, over the land of Israel, over the land of the Middle East? I don't believe that for a minute. I don't care what any scoffer or skeptic says. I believe God literally turned the sun off. When his son became sin for us, God said, I'm turning the lights out for three hours. You say the planet would have froze to death and there would have been absolute chaos. Life could not have existed on the planet without the sun. God can do anything he wants to. He created it. He gets to set the rules of his creation. But that alone, midday, sun goes out, darkness over the face of the earth for three hours. Why did not more come and lay down before the cross and cry out, this truly is the son of God? There was the earthquake. Go with me to Matthew 27. We will bounce around in the Gospels a little bit this morning. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. There's a series of things that took place. Uh, the Bible tells us the veil at the temple was rent in twain. Now, although these around the cross would not see that take place, that was one of the miracles, uh, a four-inch piece of material being ripped into. We're talking about 60 feet high. God himself took that material, ripped it open. That veil was there. We understand it was separating the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. And that veil basically was God's way of saying, stay out. 
we're talking about literally over the history of the temple, maybe 40 to 50 men that had ever stepped foot inside behind that bell into the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the Day of Atonement. We're talking about Joshua never stepped in, Moses never stepped in, David never stepped in, only the high priest. God is a God of holiness and righteousness, but on this day, he would take that veil with his holy hands from heaven and rip it in twain. But look at the other series of miracles that take place here. Verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was rent twain from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake. There was an earthquake and the rocks were rent. So if you see the lights go out and the earth quakes, shouldn't you say, okay, something supernatural is taking place here. This is not the normal crucifixion. There is no way this can be a series of coincidences. Never in the history of the earth had the lights gone out midday like that. And no, I don't care what some Bible debater or denier will try to tell you this was an eclipse of the sun. You have lost your mind what little you have to lose. But the graves were open. Uh, Look what it says, verse 52. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many. This this too, come on. When when you have an earthquake in the, the graveyards, Shake and the graves open and people that have been dead for years, for centuries, get up and begin walking around. Jerusalem. Okay, I don't know what more we can do. How many of you have ever talked to someone about Jesus Christ and you thought, I can't get any more simple. I can't get any more plain. I just don't want to know what to do. Why are you not understanding the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel? If the lights go out, the earthquakes, and the people come out of the graves, and God in the flesh is hanging there on the cross... Okay, don't feel overwhelmed by your inability to lead people to Christ if this did not bring people to Christ. Literally, this should have been the greatest altar call in the history of mankind right here at the foot of the cross. But here's what I want you to see. Three people specifically, go back with me to Mark 15, three people, personal encounters that should have been the first to respond to what was taking place because God in his plan was involving them in the events surrounding the crucifixion. Mark 15, verse 6. Now at the feast, he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with him, that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him up for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him? whom he called the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, crucify him. Now you have to understand, this trial, mock trial, uh, before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin that had taken place, leading up to him being delivered over to Pilate, everything was a farce. But here's what's going to happen. Pilate is going to say repeatedly, this is an innocent man. Five times between Pilate and Herod, 
the same thing is being said. There is nothing in this man that would lead us to condemn him to death. Pilate knows. The wife of Pilate has a dream in the night. Everyone knows there is no way we can condemn this man to death. So as their custom was, uh, leading up to the Passover, uh, one man could be set free. Pilate is going to give the crowd uh, the option of who to set free. And he thought possibly, possibly they would choose Jesus. Now you have two men condemned or being charged with the same crime. Insurrection. What was the charge? It wasn't just a blasphemy because that was literally being debated. But it was uh, this, this man is trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. He doesn't want to pay tribute. All of this, of course, was lies. Christ was the one that was innocent. Barabbas was the one that was guilty. But here's this man who the Bible says had led in the insurrection. Now, this is a real threat to the Roman Empire. He had committed murder and robbery during that insurrection. Now, can you imagine on this day, he had been in this prison, not anything like our prisons of today. A floor that you're not going to be able to sleep on, no bed, uh, open sewage in there, the, the smell, the, everything surrounding it was absolutely atrocious. But he knows, maybe possibly on the same day, he's going to be put to death. He is just waiting for his moment of death, which was a cruel crucifixion. And then he hears this uproar, this crowd that's chanting his name. He's trying to figure out uh, because he, he's not privy to what is taking place. He doesn't know the pilot has given the people an option. All he knows is the people are chanting his name and then chanting crucify him. He's trying to put together exactly what is taking place outside. And Pilate, he's, he's thinking that people will release Christ. When that doesn't happen, he's going to give them a second and a third opportunity to change their minds. Look what it says, verse 12. Pilate answered and said again to them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Look at the next question. Then Pilate said to them, Why? So that there is no reason here. We've examined him. We've heard the witnesses. What evil hath he done? And they said, We don't care what evil. We don't, all we want is this man dead. Just crucify him. Now, Barabbas cannot see, cannot hear. All he knows is he has committed a crime. He is guilty as charged. He's sentenced to death. He's going to die. And suddenly a man comes in with a key, opens up the door, and says, Barabbas, let's go. He's sinking to his crucifixion. But as he begins to walk out, they take the shackles off and tell him, you're a free man. As of today, you are free. Your charges have been dropped. You are free to go. Can you imagine as his mind races? And he says, um, can you give me a little bit of an explanation? Yes, you know the tradition. One man will be set free. This man, now if there was ever what we call a substitute death in the sense of, I don't think we comprehend the fact this is the greatest example in all the Bible because it wasn't just one man taking the place of another, one man dying for another, literally charged with the same crimes, 
one totally guilty, the other one totally innocent. This was the most unique case in the history of mankind, obviously. And Christ would be put to death for Barabbas. Barabbas would be released because of Christ. And that is not the purpose of the message this morning to to take the time to illustrate the parallels, but we all understand every single uh, child of God is, can, can see the parallels. They are, we are Barabbas. We had the sense of death. We were condemned to death. We were guilty as charged. Insurrection against God himself and against his kingdom. Guilty, and if it weren't for the sinless son of God stepping in and saying, I'll take his place. You, you don't need any additional prodding. I believe everyone here knows enough Bible to understand. You are Barabbas, period. Uh, we should die. We should pay for our own sins. We should have no hope. But for one day, uh, the gospel to get to not just our house and our hearts, but to a place where we understood Christ's willingness to die in our place. And I remember the, the moment the, the chains came off and the door came open and the words of the Holy Spirit came to your heart. So you've been set free. Alleviated knowing you no longer have a destination that's hell. Everything that you've deserved or do deserve now is being charged to someone else. Now, here's the real question. There is no way, no way in the world we could properly describe. These are texts that any pastor, any preacher, I don't care if he's a preacher, preachers like Spurgeon, uh, a movie maker, there's no way anyone can properly describe the circumstance that is taking place, the emotions, the feelings, the confusion. But think for a minute, because we're talking about the lesser known people surrounding uh, Christ and those who were present during its crucifixion. This literally was God taking one of the finest on the earth and providing him another opportunity. Now, for three and a half years, Christ had been traveling and preaching. Barabbas, whatever he was doing, whatever he was pulling, he was without excuse. Certainly, he'd heard of Christ and for a man that was condemned because of insurrection, he had to have heard about Jesus because he had been accused of these things. So maybe he thought others possibly had mentioned, well, I know of another man that's involved in insurrection. You ought to meet him. I don't know. Maybe it was the miracles. Maybe it was the message. Maybe it was the feeding of the 5,000. I guarantee you this. Because of the size of Israel, they didn't need internet. They didn't need a local newspaper. They didn't need TV or radio. Word had spread. There was no escaping that Barabbas had heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you are this close to death, this is possibly the day that you'll be crucified. And you go from the pit in your stomach to knowing I'm about ready to be tortured to death. And suddenly you are set free. And the only reason that's given to you, it's all, be, it's all because of Christ. It's all because of Christ. It's nothing that you've done. 
this isn't bail that's been paid. This wasn't a good lawyer that defended you. This wasn't a merciful judge. This was all Jesus and nothing else. Now, here's the question. We don't know when he walked out that day if he ever became a believer. Scripture doesn't tell us. We do not know. But here's what's incredible. There's a good chance that he didn't get saved. You say, Pastor, why would you believe that? Because after 30 years of ministry, I have watched people sit through some of the most spirit-filled services. I've been around the country. I've, I've listened to some of the greatest and most eloquent uh, speakers of this generation and watched as lost sinners sitting in the congregation heard, came under conviction, understood the gospel, and yet refused to respond, walked out the door, and many of those either never had another opportunity or never took the opportunity to get born again. So here's what we have. Not only is someone literally experiencing the greatest day in the history of mankind, but who else could say it like Barabbas? Salvation is being offered. Set free is going to be the invitation for every man for the next couple of millenniums. He gets to literally be the illustration that will be used in messages to explain the subject, yes. he, he gets to know the physical meaning and yet at the same time have the opportunity to understand the spiritual meaning. Amen. He could have paused. He could have waited. He, I don't know if he waited around to see the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. I don't know if he was in such a hurry. He ran out the door, ran down the street and got as far away from this scene as possible. The minute that it was possible, we do not know and I don't want to suppose But here's what I want you to understand this morning. There were so many that were right there at this point, but no one had the benefits of the day like Barabbas had experienced. And we do not even know if he responded to the gospel invitation. I want you to see another case, chapter 15 and verse 20. I don't want to... Dwell here long because we'll probably come back and re-mention this man in our evening service. But the Bible says he compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 23. Let's see. Parallel text here in the book of Luke. I can't imagine Simon that day, a visiting stranger to Israel, a man of a different race, a different color. We don't know why specifically he was chosen. Was it because of his... Uh, nationality? Was it because obviously he was not a Jew? Uh, Was it because of his proximity? None of those things are revealed in Scripture. But what uh, I believe he came to realize was this was a favor 
a special favor that God showed him this day. Can you imagine the time of the Passover, the streets are just filled with people, so many people from outside Jerusalem, but literally it's just mass chaos for a week. And everywhere you go, it's just flooded with people. Tents are up, uh, it's, people are staying everywhere they should not be staying, friends, relatives, but uh, parks, open air places that would uh, allow them to sleep. It's just incredible the amount of people that were here. But as they're taking Christ up to Golgotha, he is too weak to carry the cross. And here's what they're doing. The eyes of these soldiers are scanning the crowd, looking for someone big enough, strong enough to carry this weight for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what it says in verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. And it says, led him away. They laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people. Look what it says. Of women which also be well and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. Now, consider this. Here's a man that... Probably because of his being from a, a different country, having recently arrived to Jerusalem, very well, knew nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. My guess is he's there looking at the great throngs of people, trying to figure out what, what everything is taking place and why the noise. And he, he sees the cross as it, it makes its way down the street and he hears the shouting and he tries to get as close as he can just to figure out what's going on. Maybe it was simple curiosity that put him where he was in this crowd. And as he pushes his way closer and closer and he gets up there, he's trying to figure out who is this man? What is this crime? What is taking place here? He heard a crucifixion. Maybe it was the first time to actually see a crucifixion. The cruelty, the suffering, the pain, the mocking that is taking place. He's trying in his mind to sort through all the circumstance. And the only problem was he managed to get too close and possibly he was just large enough considering those that were surrounding the cross. He was physically big enough for the soldier to say, that's the right man to carry this cross. Now imagine as they take the cross and they put it on his back and Christ already physically tortured nearly to death. He suffered a beating that most would not survive. He's already attempted to carry this cross. Physically, he's unable to. He stumbles and falls and this cross is transferred to the back of Simon He's going to get to spend, imagine this, the next few minutes walking side by side. Jesus Christ, as he will pay for our sins, he gets to see him at one of the most key moments. Any lost man, okay, if you're ever going to have a chance at being saved, this is where you need to be. This is what you must understand. Now imagine this. You would think that this man would be cursing, right? If he were a normal man. 
He would be weeping, wailing, complaining, cursing. But that's not what he's doing. He's followed by women, and look at his conversation. Look what the Bible says. Jesus turns to them, and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Can you imagine what's going through Simon's mind? Why is he telling these women, don't cry for me? Don't waste your tears on me. He says, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He was speaking prophetically. Now, whether this is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem and what the Romans would do to the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, or whether this is speaking of Israel during the time of tribulation, I'm not here to debate with you over that. I'm here to say Christ in his love and compassion and mercy, despite what he was suffering for us, looked at those ladies and said, don't waste a tear on me. For you, there's coming a much worse day. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And I've never heard a message on this, never heard a preacher even mention this. I don't suppose to have enough Bible knowledge and wisdom to know exactly what the Lord was talking about. I would guess he's referring to himself. A green tree not worthy of death, not worthy of being cut down, too young, too innocent, and yet they will do this to a green tree. What will they do to a dried tree, to Israel? Full of rot, full of age, full of flesh, full of sin. And we know what would happen to Israel. But church, can you imagine? I want you to focus on Simon for a minute. Simon, this man who knows nothing of Christ, will be introduced to the very Son of God in his last moments of life upon this earth. What an introduction. You know what he's introduced to? The love and the compassion that was constantly selfless, focused on others. I wonder what words were said. But if nothing was said directly to Simon, what he saw during those moments in a man this curious to get this close and end up carrying the cross, I wouldn't doubt if he stayed put and watched the entirety of the crucifixion. Now go with me to Acts 13 for just a moment. Once again, I possibly might continue speaking on Simon, this evening, I don't know, but just quickly, once again, when we talk about these that surrounded the cross, the lesser known, God does not give us a lot of details, although, specifically in Scripture, if Christ gives additional names, he's giving us additional clues, because these would be people known by the early church. If he said the father of Alexander and the father of Rufus, these weren't just casually names being thrown out of his boys, but people that would be known and recognized by the early church. 
Acts 13, 1, the church here in Antioch, there was in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon that was called Niger. I think there's a good chance this might have been the very same man. A man that ends up in Antioch, a man that ends up being a leader in the church. I believe Mark is giving us a little bit of insight to what God did specifically in the heart of this man. If he's listed by name and his boys are listed by name, surely there's a reason here that's being made known in the early church and those that will be reading these letters will recognize these names and possibly point back and say, Simon, you know what? There you were, a Gentile, so far from God, so clueless about the mercy and the grace of God. And your curiosity brought you close to the very Son of God as he carried his cross, and God smiled on you and did you a favor and allowed you to carry that cross so you could bump shoulders with the Lord Jesus Christ. In those moments and be brought to a place of salvation. You understand what Christ is doing during his death? He never stops giving man not just a chance, but the ultimate and the greatest opportunity they could ever have. A a visual illustration, a personal word, great love. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 15. Let's see one more this morning. Mark 15, verse 39. The man that we initially spoke about in the reading of our original text, verse 39, there's a centurion. When the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out, gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, of all the people surrounding the cross, This was one of the few that was there against his will. There were some that were there participating in the crucifixion, others in the mocking. Some were simply Christ haters. Others were curious. Some were the women that had followed the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the case of the centurion, we understand he had no choice. He is over these soldiers. I'm sure he had experienced scores of deaths, scores of crucifixions. He had no idea how extraordinary this one would be. Now go back with me in verse 16. When as soon as Pilate releases Barabbas, he delivers Jesus to be scourged. So now he's in charge. Christ is placed under the charge of the centurion. Look what it says, verse 16. The soldiers led him away in the hall called Praetorium. And they call together the whole band. Now, here's what's going to happen is he's in charge of these soldiers. He's going to stand back and watch. They are going to mock Christ and play games. Verse 17, evil and cruel games. They clothe him, Christ, with purple. They're making fun of the fact that he was called the king of the Jews. They gave him a crown, but we know what the crown was, a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, not gently, but cruelly. And they begin to salute him. I can't imagine. It it turns my stomach and makes me sick thinking about it being done to any man, 
much less the Son of God. But here's the vilest of the vile. They're, they're having fun as they mock this king. And they come by with their faces just brimming with evil as they salute and they bow and make fun of this man that could have spoken a single word into their heartbeat in a single second. Verse 19, then they smote him on the head. Can you imagine the pain of that? As he has that crown of thorns on his head and they're smiting him. Not just the pain of the reed, but those thorns as they go deeper into his brow. Nothing worse than this. They'll come by and spit one at a time. Bowing. Some go to their knees in fake and mock worship. And here's the centurion watching. Now, he's not just watching the cruelty of his soldiers because he had seen this before. Maybe not on this level, but he had seen this before. They were all depraved. He was depraved. He didn't care normally. He would let it go to the very extreme. But in each case, he had seen how soldiers had responded to this kind of treatment. He had seen how people and criminals had reacted under these circumstances. But this man was different. Because there was never any hatred in his eyes. There was never any reaction of bitterness. Cruelty was not responded to with cruelty, not cursing with cursing, but it was love. The response was consistently one of humility and love. Now tell me that wouldn't make an impact on you. It's not the impact of someone's speech. It's the impact of someone's behavior. And we've all noticed at times people under great stress or duress. And when someone responds correctly or kindly or lovingly or compassionately, that message leaves a lifelong impact. Just like a wrong reaction, a wrong response leaves a lifelong impact. So here he is, he's seen this scores of times, but this time it's very different because of the response of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not reacting the same way. Look what it says, verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, put his own clothes on him. They lead him out to crucify him. Now, let's move forward to Calvary. Look what it says, verse 27. With him they crucified two thieves. The one on his right hand, the other on his left. The scripture was fulfilled, which said he was numbered with the transgressors. The mocking continues. They that passed by, they railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. Little did they know, had he saved himself, he would have condemned the world. He had to make a choice. He could have saved himself, but he would not for our sake. Verse 31, likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves of the scribes, he saved others himself, he cannot save. You're right. For in order to save others, he could not save himself. Verse 32, let Christ the King of Israel descend now from the cross that we might see and believe. And look what it says, verse 32. And they that were crucified with him did what? Reviled. Now, 
we know the end of this story. One gets saved, the other one continues to mock and refuse, even up to the moment of his death. But here's what's impacting this centurion. We know in Luke 23 that he's going to look over and say, Father, forgive them. Not forgive him, not forgive one man, one person, one repentant, but literally offering forgiveness to every man. It's been offered. It won't be received, but it'll be offered. And to see all of the debauchery, the the vile behavior, the cruelty in this crowd, and watch, not at one time, not for one moment, he didn't have a weak moment. He didn't have one evil response. He didn't have an evil look. There was never any hatred spewed out of his mouth. His faith never became distraught. He never, no matter what the circumstance or the comment or the spitting. And this centurion was watching all of this and saying, what dignity, what mercy, what compassion, what composure. Now go back with me to Luke 23 for just a moment. Verse 20, verse 39, Luke 23, 39. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, let me ask you this. What would be the normal human response to someone who's gone through this kind of physical torture, who's literally struggling with every breath, who just just the weight of his body, the inability to get any air to his lungs, out there in the heat of the day being mocked and reviled, so near physical death, Would there be any reason to respond to any commentary, especially to those that had participated in your mocking? Who cares that he's saying, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom? Who cares? You were a participant just hours ago. Or even if he did care, did he have to respond? Should he waste his breath? What do you think the centurion is thinking as he is comforting, consoling, and then telling him, today thou shalt be with me in Paradise. Who at this kind of moment of crisis actually cares about anyone else? Now, go back with me for just a minute to John chapter 19. John 19 verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Love. He's watching this man die. Now here's what's taking place. This centurion is watching from the scourging all the way, uh, the carrying of the cross, now to his crucifixion. He's listened to his words, forgive them, behold thy mother. He's, my God, my God, why hast thou 
forsaken me. He's processing all that's taking place. And here's what he does. Go back with me to Mark for just a moment. In the midst of this, the Bible tells us his response. Go to Mark, and I'm going to read you a verse from Luke. When we just read about those words today, shall thou be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it speaks of the darkness over all the earth. Verse 45, the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent. Verse 46, he cries out, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Verse 47 says this, now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now go with me to Mark chapter 15, once again, verse 39. In verse 39, he's recorded as saying, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, as we look at these people surrounding the crucifixion, here's what we don't know. We never get any real verification from Scripture that any of them got saved. We don't know if Ravis got saved. We don't know if Simon got saved. The centurion would be the one that we would most consider here a confession of faith from disbelief to belief. Go with me to Romans chapter 10. This centurion did not have a Baptist soul winner, didn't have a completed Bible. He didn't have a church track with the sinner's prayer in the back. You know what he had? A visual illustration and the chance to observe the Lord Jesus Christ over a period of hours. I believe the impact was life-changing. I believe he went from disbelief to belief. I think he went from a hard heart to a broken heart. I think he went from a destiny of hell to a destiny of heaven. But once again, here's my question for you. How many times did you hear before you responded? How many times did you understand before you gave your heart and life to Christ? How many invitations did you sit through before you had the humility to bust through your pride and respond to the gospel? Now look what it says in Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. How many believe that centurion did that? Of all those there that should have confessed, he was the one that was noticed in Scripture as saying, this man was innocent. This man truly was the very Son of God. I believe that confession was out of a heart of belief. That if thou shalt confess and believe in thine heart that God hath raised from the dead, thou shalt be what? Saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now as we look at Calvary, I... I want to encourage you as we go through these last few chapters of Mark. We consider the crucifixion. I know you've heard scores of messages if you spend any time in church. And if we're not careful when it comes to these passages, we literally put our brains in a neutral. Okay, we've heard this. I know the information. I know the details. But maybe if we go a little deeper than the details over the next few weeks in our own hearts and minds and understand this. To what extreme did Christ go through to save every man? 
but some men get even greater chances. Who had a greater opportunity than Barabbas, Simon, and the centurion? We're talking about right there. They became literal illustrations for every preacher that's ever read this book and every person that's ever taught on these chapters. They're going to mention the same people, but they were there. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it from his lips. They watched it, not for just a moment, but they had the opportunity to watch it from beginning to end. And here's the question. When the lights went out and from his mouth came these words, it is finished. Why were there not scores of people on their faces crying out for mercy? Why were there not scores saying this truly was the Son of God? Why were there not scores of people saying he is the only way of salvation? Hard to believe people be sitting in here this morning. Every Sunday we have people sitting in here Someone without Christ that will walk out these doors having heard the message and refused to respond. No, you weren't there at Calvary. No, you weren't there with Simon. But Scripture allowed you to walk there and see it through the eyes of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit led you to truth. But Christian, here's what we ought to say. We've got to live so filled with the Spirit of God because if you have man's heart so blind, so hardened that he would sit through Calvary and not respond, should we not understand it's not your presentation, it's not your visual, it's not your illustration, it's not your knowledge of the Scripture. It has to be God Himself that takes the sinner to an understanding that leads to repentance, that brings about a confession that ultimately results in salvation. Because nothing we do, oh, we're going to be obedient. We are going to be obedient. I'm going to preach, and I'm going to teach, and I'm going to witness, I'm going to do everything I can. But I want to be spirit-filled because at the end of the day, I can take a sinner through a walk through the Bible, plead, beg, pray, cry, but at the end of the day, there's a Holy Spirit, and Him alone can do the work. He alone can do the work. Amen. And if you've heard the gospel, some of you have parents and children and co-workers and friends, and you think, what more? What more could I do? Well, the question is, what more could have God done for Barabbas or Simon or the centurion? And here's what we know according to Scripture. If anyone during that time responded, probably it would have been one of these three. But as far as we know, the rest, we see no response at all.